So you're saying to yourself, yo, sir, dude, I wanted to see Kevin Smith in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but the motherfucker sold out. Well, after I shed a tear for you, I highly recommend bookmarking csmod.com. That's the place on the worldwide interwebs to see all upcoming Smodco shows, updated with linky links to Tiki Tickets. Say it with me, baby. csmod.com. Nice. Ooh, I just got a little hard there. So, you're saying, yo, sir, dude, I love sir, and I want to show the world. Wear your sir love with our official t-shirts, biatch. Fishies have no eyes. Let us fuck. Jay and Silent Bob get old. The Garmy. There's also posters, action figures. There's so many to choose from. Grab your smirch at smodcast.com. Scroll down and click on Smerchandise. This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. But our, our first performer here has uh, recently transplanted himself into Los Angeles. He is a definite up-and-comer, a mover and shaker in L.A. I've loved his music since the first time I heard him. I'm looking forward to working with him more. Would you please give a warm welcome to Logan Heftel. I'm a sinner I've been 
for too long Yes, I am merely a beginner Maybe one day I will be strong As a young lady, I forgive you Yes, time is such a mystery When you get to where you're going I think you'll find you're missing me Oh, the sentimental winter early on The days are slow Well, into December I will try to let you go Someday you're gonna fall in love with me And now I'm walking through the rainfall As I call you to the street Here at midnight I'm standing Talking dark and cold and beat Someday you're gonna fall in love with me why is it someday you're gonna fall in love with me? Wouldn't that be cool if they were like really those girls right sitting in the studio right now with us? <laughs> All crushing on Logan. That was Logan Heftel, who's sitting here about two feet away from me, um, doing little devices and doohickeys on the uh, mixer here. Uh, you can find that and other fantastic songs of his at Logan, L-O-G-A-N-H-E-F-T-E-L dot com. Check him out. Go buy all of his stuff. Like buy 10 copies of everything and send it to all of your friends and to, and to, and to really, really rich people smart people who want to who want to pay for a huge tour where he goes out across America and Europe. He wants to go to Europe too. Let's take him to Europe. Yes, I think he needs to go to Amsterdam and try some of that hashish. I'll go and just make sure he's okay the whole time. We'll just follow him around. We can do my podcast from the van. It'll be fantastic. So Simon Cowell, if you're listening, and you know, come bring come come get us here in Westchester. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Um, I am the most unprepared today that I've ever been for a radio show. It's just fantastic. I know, right? Suzanne Wong's here already, and she's like, what am I, fucking chopped liver? <laughs> no, darling, you're not. You're you're more like a foie gras, sweetie. You definitely are. Uh, so, yeah, I'm completely unprepared. I don't have a script. I um, I This is what I did today. I Okay, you know, I'm, I'm doing my show tomorrow night at Santa Monica Playhouse. I'm doing it next week at Sketchfest. And, uh, it's great. I'm off book. Oh, yes. It's official. I'm off book. Yes. The Michael McKean, whatever he did, he looked in my eyes last week and sat here and said, it will happen. And it's like his energy entered my body and, and memorization happened right and left. It was fabulous. So that's happening. And I did a little rehearsal yesterday and I'm like starting to, you know, peel the onion. Now it's another layer. Oh, now we're talking about this part of it. Now this emotional truth and all that. So it's all very cool. So I'm very obsessed with that and kind of wrapped up in it and working. I was working on my program, you know, the actual little paper program that I'm going to give people tomorrow night. And it's going through the tech script for the lighting guy and doing the tech script for my husband, Bob McCall, who's, you know, running the computer thing. And, and, uh, yeah, I was supposed to do an interview with a lovely radio station up in Marin County at 3.15 today. Oh, yeah. And I just totally fucking just spaced out. And of course, was not checking my email, did not have my phone on or anything. And like at 4.15, I checked my email and I'm like, oh, and it's like that thing, it's that fucking nightmare where you slept through the final. Oh, I always have those. Or no, my nightmare is either I haven't been to class all s semester and final is tomorrow 
or I just arrived on a movie set, uh, first day of shooting, and I'm the star, and I've never even seen the script. That Those are my two anxiety nightmares. So I just lived my anxiety nightmare today out loud. And then to top it all off, I'm all pissed about that and getting stuff ready for the podcast. And um, I go in the house, and my old elderly dog, Ned, has pooped in the house, and I don't see it. And of course, I step in <laughs> <laughs> and we don't we don't shame Ned because he's elderly and his little poop shoot thing just doesn't work like it used to. And God knows when my poop shoot thing doesn't work like it used to, I don't want anyone yelling at me. So I can't yell at him and like I'm so pissed. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, everything was fine until then. And then, of course, I go into the total OCD anxiety thing of like, oh, my God, this is it. Like, I don't know. Mercury's now in retrograde and everything's going to fuck up on my show tomorrow <laughs> and it's just going to be this huge snowballing effect of hell. And um, so, yeah, so so I'm not prepared today. And yet, you know what? I'm fucking prepared. I've been I've been fucking living my whole life and I'm prepared for today. And, I, you know, there's a couple things I wanted to talk about before we, we ha- I have two guests on today, which I'm very excited about two powerful, fantastic women. Uh, but one of the things was, you know, the whole SOPA thing that was going on, which uh, was really cool to see Google's little crossed out thing and Wikipedia. And I was telling people, children on Twitter to go to the building full of books called the library yesterday. It's amazing what they have there. Um, but one of the things that I talked about on Twitter last night was, um, you know, since my dad died, his videos, uh, you know, and I have a, um, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I own, um, all the HBO shows and all the albums and stuff, my, his company, and I own it with partners with his manager. And, um, so, but, you know, his stuff is all over the internet, like all over the internet. And basically the DVD and the CD sales after he died, partly it's because he's dead, but also just because everything's free now, uh, you know, they're, they're just, they don't sell like they used to. And so I, you know, I'm going back and forth about all this and how much do I take off of YouTube and how much I don't. And, and I think I found a happy medium, but it was a fun conversation on Twitter last night and getting the, the really the fans reaction and, you know, people really, um, saying, you know, look, it's, it's your intellectual property. It's your copyright. You, you can do what you want with it. And some of it should be free because I know the last three years since my dad died that people in Iran have gotten a hold of me, Italy, Pakistan, and they've all found it, found him on YouTube. So I'm going to create a YouTube channel for my dad. I'll have free stuff on there. You know, we'll have some exclusive stuff. And then the rest of it, we're going to be like Disney and pull. <laughs> so it'll be a little give and a little take, which is always the best way to be. It's so yin and yang. I'm really trying to be. And that's kind of the way my dad was. I mean, you know, he, he let some of it go, but you know, he didn't like the egregious stuff when they put the whole DVD on the whole hour and 15 minutes. It's like, really, really, you can't just pull the little part you like. And of course, you know, the whole Occupy movement was using my dad's American dream quote, which was very exciting to see that and to be a part of that. And, and actually, yesterday, someone's uh, SOPA protest. Oh, I can't remember what website it was. They had a whole thing about um censorship and they cut a bunch of movies. They basically used a bunch of copyrighted stuff and they used my dad's seven dirty words, which was great. So it was exciting to be a part of that. Um, so yeah, so, you know, it's, it's all a big, big part of the dialogue. Um, I know right now that some of you really should be listening live because you're watching the GOP debate and really who cares at this point? I mean, 
hello. I mean, like you, like you're going to learn anything new from these people. I don't think so. And, um, and the fact that Newt is actually, um, gaining again on Mitt Romney, that's just, it's so exciting. But the best thing about this whole South Carolina primary has been Stephen Colbert and John Stewart and watching them last week. I think it was Thursday show. Uh, do the transfer of power and all of that. And it was, I sat there in awe, absolute and total awe at their comedic genius being able to, you know, make this issue relevant, talk about it in a way that's funny and yet factual. I mean, they got the goddamn lawyer right there, the guy who, who like, you know, ran the PAC system or whatever. And, um, and just, you know, th- their ability to make fun of it while at the same time, you know, really underline and really display the intricacies of the law through their dialogue, through their comedic. Di- I don't know. Is there anything more genius than that in the world right now? And I- I've, I, I think, I think we need to coin a new phrase, which is like comedic activist, because that's what I really see them as. They're, they're comedians. And yes, they're satirists, but they're also activists because they are, actively trying to impact, and they may claim they're not, but bullshit, they are actively trying to impact our knowledge of the political system and the political system itself by <laughs> putting out those ads. If you haven't seen them yet, go to Stephen Colbert's superpack.com or whatever it is. And um, these ads are so funny. I mean, the one that they accuse Mitt Romney of being a serial killer, <laughs> it's just fantastic. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting time. It's interesting time. This, yeah. And the GOP candidates, I don't know. It's, it's all so silly. Uh, they, they, these, uh, they must be so depressed that that's, I mean, I used to be depressed as a Democrat, you know, when they'd come along with our slate of candidates and I would think, really, John Kerry, that's what we're doing this time. Oh man, you've got to be kidding. And so I'm sure, you know, no wonder people are going for Ron Paul and, and, and some of the nut jobs too. I mean, people are just pissed and want something different. And, um, you know, I, 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 we all want something different. We just, you know, we got to do it. We got to do it smart. We got to do it with our heads, you know, held straight and thinking caps on. We can't pull all the system down right away because then it'll be like Mad Max. And trust me, that will not be fun. Because, you know, nobody wants to drive around in those dune buggies and, and be having to deal with Tina Turner in that outfit. It'll be, it'll be very depressing. Um, what else is it? Oh, someone just said on Twitter that it's, um, he said he'd pay to watch my dad, uh, on the internet because it's cheaper than a psychologist. <laughs> Which is kind of ironic because, you know, I'd spent my whole life watching my dad and I needed therapy. So that's very strange. How does that work? <laughs> oh, I guess you'll have to come see my show, solo show to find out. <laughs> so um, I have Suzanne, uh, Suzanne, Suzanne Wang. I was about to call her Suzanne Wang. Really? I know. Isn't that, really? Isn't that horrible? I'm going to get that here today. <laughs> I thought this would be the one time I don't have to say it's actually pronounced Huang. Thank you very well, it, much. And it's with the H, so you know how to do the Huang. You know who says it better than anyone is Schwartz. Yeah. My main squeeze. Mr. Eric Schwartz. So we play often Huang. on this place. I'm going to try to play your cancer rap song right now. We'll see if it's the one with the uh, with the words or not. Yeah. See, see I if think I, it's track two, but we'll see. I know. We'll see. I, I dragged two over, but knowing me today, I dragged the same two over because that's the, because I think – you, I think, might, you might have done two copies of the one without the yeah, words. Yeah, Mercury is awesome. in retrograde in my head or whatever. Me that. too, ever since chemo. 
<laughs> Mercury retrograde equals chemo brain. Thank you. Okay, let's see if this is the right one okay. or not. Okay. We'll know very soon. Okay, good. I'll tell you. That's excellent. Okay. <laughs> My name is Suzanne and I have cancer. It's not a question, so no need for an answer. I'm sick of all your unsolicited advice. So if you feel like giving it, you better think twice. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Cancer. Cancer and Cancer and Cancer and Cancer. If I say it enough and pile it on your plate, maybe overuse will make you habituate and get bored with it like I wish that you would be so I can stop writing rap and get back to melody blah blah cancer blah 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 cancer blah blah my main complaint is that you're calling me a saint when I'm losing my ability to exercise restraint and you say stupid shit like is that your real hair yes is that your face or perhaps your derriere blah blah cancer blah 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 cancer blah blah you should really eat more. You know you're much too skinny. Maybe it's the chemo, you simple little ninny. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. You need more exercise. You should really try walking. I'm sorry, I was spacing out the whole time you were talking. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. You look so pretty. Are you sure you're really sick? You sound so stupid. Can I punch you in the dick? Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. I have an idea. You should get some radiation. Holy shit. Give this man a nomination and a standing ovation for his brilliant proclamation. Oh, and please get me a pen so I can take dictation. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. You wouldn't be sick if you knew Jesus was the one. You wouldn't be alive right now if I had bought a gun. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. If you don't obey what I say, you're going to be dead. Well, I was taught to be polite, so you first. Go ahead. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. Cancer is a gift. That's what all the gurus say. And yet you never see it on Santa's flying sleigh. If cancer is a gift, then I want to return it. There's got to be a better way than cut it out and burn it. Or poison it and poison me. It's such a damn dichotomy. If radiation causes it, how can it be the cure? If chemo causes tumors, well then sign me up for sure. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. If you really want to help me, you can ask me what I've tried. Ask me what I'm doing now and how I feel inside. Ask what I believe in and not how much I weigh. Ask what you can say or do to help me out today. And if you listen to my answers before you spew your words, they'll come across like diamonds instead of little turds. So if I bite your head off, please don't take offense. But some things that you say to me are lacking common sense. I'm grateful for your love, so don't think that I'm a cunt. It's just that having cancer has made me really blunt. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. Blah, blah, cancer, blah, blah. If you still don't understand and you don't want to be a schmuck, you know what you should do? Shut the fuck up. You know what you should do? Shut the fuck up. You know what you should do? Shut the fuck up. You know what you should do? Shut the fuck up. Awesome. (laughs) 
That is so fantastic. You know, I'm taking this songwriting class, and so, uh, you know, I'm 49 years old, never written a song in my life, and decided to, you know, what the hell, I'll take a songwriting class now. And um, it's Harriet Shock, who's amazing, and she's been teaching songwriting for 30 years, I think. And um, maybe that's not true. Maybe I made that up. I'm like, <laughs> maybe it's not 30 years. Maybe it's three years. But anyway, she's great. And she wrote the song Ain't No Way to Treat a Lady, which was mm-hmm. Helen Reddy's big hit. Anyway, um, I don't think she ever expected that um, when I became a student that <laughs> – you know, I'd be right. I wrote a punk rock song, as you know, called Rectal Release <laughs> about an ex-boyfriend. And then I, you know, I got so sick of people telling me what I should do yeah. about the cancer who've never had cancer, never even looked up the word oncology, and yet they are the expert, mm-hmm. you know. And so th- it was very cathartic to write this. <laughs> well, and I'm sure it feels like it's like you've been taking notes, clearly. Like all, like you went through your Facebook thing and like, what are all the people saying to me? What are all the And truly, that one, there was a guy, he didn't post it on my wall, but there was a guy who I've never met that sent me a Facebook message that said that I would not have cancer if I had accepted Jesus Christ as wow. my personal savior. And I reposted that. And at the end, I wrote, this is why people hate Christians, because <laughs> Come on. What are you talking about? So no Christian has ever gotten cancer? Am I, am I supposed to understand that correctly? What, what are you talking about? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I, it's, it's – Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's fantastic. Oh, is that what I was supposed to do? It wasn't It wasn't no. actually the acupuncture or the change the diet or the no. chemo no. or meditation. It's actually just it's Jesus. Just, it's just Jesus. Got yeah. it. Yeah, and you know we know, we know how well that worked for Tebow last weekend and in the Denver Broncos. This is what so. I love. This is what I love. If you're going to give Jesus or God credit for your win, then you must blame God yes. when you lose. Yes, I mean that follows, doesn't it? It, it? And yet that never happens. No, no, it doesn't. So if it works well for you, God did it. If it doesn't work well for you, it's your fault. Yeah, I, I know. I don't get that. that. <laughs> anyway, um, that's not very logical. But then again, that's really logic is not involved when it comes to religion as no, we know not so, so much so mm-hmm. um you are um uh, as as you say you've been making cancer your bitch now for yes and fisting it in the ass <laughs> Yay! good times good time cancer by the way is really good for parking i don't know if you're aware of, of this but hmm. um after getting uh back surgery and hip replacement surgery mm-hmm. and lots of radiation and chemo um Especially after, I think it was really after the hip replacement surgery where, you know, you can't do things like walk yes. very well. <laughs> um, the, uh, my uh, oncologist, uh, Dr. Berkowitz over at Providence St. Joseph's, who's awesome, the only oncologist I haven't wanted to punch in the face <laughs> this at is true. every moment. I, I, I've heard about your other ones. Yeah. He? Yeah. He's amazing. But anyway, he said, um, do you, uh, actually, no, maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it was my mother and father because my father has been through uh, chemo and uh, ended mm. up with a, a handicap parking placard for mm. his car. Mm-hmm. And so my mother said, well, why don't we get one for you? Because every time we drive you somewhere and then, you know, you, you have to walk far to get to... Yeah, and for a while you weren't walking. You were completely... No, it was like I was on a walker. I had yeah. crutches. I had one crutch. I had a cane, whatever. Yeah. So... um so we got one. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, well, this is cool. So if there's one of those big blue marked handicap with the wheelchair spaces yeah. available, Deluxe. I can park there. Yeah. That's what I thought that thing was for. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. No. You can use this bitch <laughs> to park at a meter for free. Wow. And you, it doesn't matter what the time limit says. If it says 15 minutes and it's a meter, wow. too bad. There's no time limit for you because you're gimpy. You- <laughs> yeah. Not only that, it gets even better. 
permit parking only in a residential neighborhood? Yeah. Oh no, that's my permit. Wow. So I can park anywhere in a residential area. It says permit parking only. That's yeah. So, and of course the, any green curb, any blue curb, right. and, you know, so, so if you want better parking, I, I recommend <laughs> that you rub up against me or something. If only cancer now, were contagious. Now how long do you get to keep this thing? Well, you know, um, uh, my oncologist m- gave me a temporary one to last through February, but then he said, you know what? I can make that a permanent one if you like. And I'm thinking, <laughs> let me think. Yes. And I'm thinking also, fuck you to anybody who's like, well, that's not fair. And I'm like, do you have any idea? Cause now I'm understanding the whole culture. Do you have any idea how many times I've seen people get out of the par- handicap parking space mm-hmm. and they're, they're also walking just fine. Mm-hmm. I have yet to see somebody in pull up to a handicap parking space. Open the door and fall out and crawl <laughs> to his or her destination. Oh my God. I was watching. Do you know that show Taboo? I think it's National Geographic. No. Okay. It's called, it's, you've got to see the show. It's amazing. It's like, it's all the things that, um, people do that are kind of like subculture and they don't like share. Well, Bob and I were watching an episode the other night and this is a real syndrome. This woman, uh, started out the documentary. She was, uh, she's paraplegic. She's got braces on her legs. She's got a wheelchair, the whole thing and everything. Oh no, she gets home. She stands up. She gets <gasps> out of the wheelchair. What? Yes. And so there was this, what it is, is her brain, her whole life, her brain has told her that she shouldn't be able to use her legs, even though she can. And she loves hiking. But when she's in the city or at work, she pretends she's a paraplegic. So what? I know it's, and she's got braces on and everything. And I'm like going, wow. And, and she came out basically to do this documentary and she started coming out in front of her coworkers. So she's sitting there with her coworkers going, I have something to tell you. I'm not really a paraplegic. <gasps> I have this syndrome and I can't remember. It's like dysmorphic body, da, da, da. And I'm thinking, I don't know. Really? Uh, I don't know if this is a syndrome or not. I'm like, what kind of fucking syndrome is this? But she, and she wants to get surgery to make herself paraplegic. No, come she on, Kelly. She wants to herself. Come on, Kelly. <laughs> so what are you talking about? Are there a lot of doctors that are signing up for that? Yeah, that's a Bob's yeah. like, Bob's like, yes, uh, I'm sure doctors are like lining up to do that surgery. But, you know, she thinks she thinks, and and of course, like we all do, you know, that whole, when I get dot, 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 life will be perfect. When I get my surgery and I'm paralyzed and I'm really a paraplegic, then my life will feel complete and I will feel whole. I think she needs brain surgery. (laughs) That is amazing. Isn't it? That's amazing. So here's people like really faking, 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 faking. Uh, I know. I, I'm actually am speechless. <laughs> wow. Wait. Hold on here. I need. What time is it? It's five twenty-five p.m. on January nineteenth, twenty twelve. Suzanne Kelly Wong Carlin is said to Suzanne Wong, "This woman wants surgery to make her paraplegic." <laughs> yeah. So there's freaky shit everywhere, oh, girl. Wow. Freaky, okay. freaky shit. So (laughs) maybe then she thinks she can do the female version of the diving bell and the butterfly. (laughs) Did you see that movie? He he blinks blinks his his way through the whole thing. Yeah. You know, I remember watching that movie thinking to myself, I am such an asshole. If he can write a book by blinking his fucking eye and it takes him like, you know, 10 years, I I better go home and fucking write something. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Exactly. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Like, what? How did it work? One blink meant A, and two blinks meant B, and it's like, how do you? I mean, I don't have, I don't have the patience. And then it's like, you, uh, could you start over? What was that word again? I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. I type a hundred words a minute, and I don't have the patience sometimes to sit down and write. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh my god. Well, speaking of writing, I know you're working on a new project. I am. Well, you know, it's so interesting. Ever since I met you, Kelly, like. It feels like we're on such parallel paths so often. Mm. And the fact that um, we both have backgrounds in psychology mm-hmm. and we both coach people yep. and we're both spiritual chicks mm-hmm. and now we're both doing solo shows about our lives that are both probably long overdue, <laughs> right? Absolutely, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. And so um, – just be, you know, being a witness to your journey creatively has been inspiring and exciting to watch because I know you as a friend and as somebody who's smart and uh, has something to say. You I'm, know, I'm blushing. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um. So, uh, so here's what happened. I um. There's something called Taboo Tales, which is a fabulous uh, spoken word event. Uh. Produced by Lorenz Sala and Corey Padel and, oh, somebody whose fucking name I'm going to fucking forget chemo because brain. of chemo brain. I want to say Raul, but maybe it's like, you know, Tim. <laughs> I, I don't know. Oh my God. Anyway, <laughs> Taboo Tales is, um, is this, uh, event where they, they want people, the, the spoken word artists are to come and, and say, reveal a story that, you know, you just never thought you would say out loud in public to anyone. Or like admit. you want to be paralyzed. Yes. <laughs> yes. My wildest dream is to be paralyzed so that I can't walk or move, so that I'll shit myself and someone else will wipe it for me. <laughs> anyway, so um, I told, uh, when was this? Maybe... Um, Six months ago, I told um, a 10 minute version of my five year story mm. with cancer, which was that was sort of challenging to mm-hmm. do. But it was complete with, you know, my perverse sense of humor and uh, visual aids of some of, <laughs> you know, I, I actually took pictures of my tit mm. or third tit at some time, you know, which was the tumor that was growing out of my chest. Mm. And, um, and it had such a huge impact on people, um, to the point where, People started coming to me and saying, I have AIDS. I'm infertile. My father molested me. And I'm thinking, oh, oh my God, yep. because there was some sort of vicarious mm-hmm. courage and permission through osmosis to yep. talk about stuff that we – and so I think one of the themes for me is that we are only as sick as our secrets. Mm-hmm. And that one of the things uh, – one of the reasons that I think that I'm reversing this stage four cancer nightmare is because – I finally came out of the closet to the press and the public knows and I got really vulnerable about it and, you know, started asking for help. And and, and, uh, and you, you cry know. in public a lot lately. I, I cry in public. Yeah, it's like – and the show is called <laughs> Cracked Open, Let Go and Let Gook. And the reason it's called this is because it feels like my heart has been permanently cracked open mm. because of my experiences. Mm-hmm. Permanently. And, um, I'm, I'm much more often crying, uh, because of happiness mm. than because of any sort of sadness or grief or yeah. remorse anymore. And, um, 
that's called Let Go and Let Gook as the subtitle because, you know, I'm a 12 stepper and one of the expressions is let go and let God. So that you're supposed to just let go, you know, release whatever you're upset or concerned about right. and just surrender and, and just surrender and accept and have faith and, you know, let your higher power take care of it. And I changed it to let go and let gook because one of the many, uh, challenges and, and dichot- false dichotomies for me is that I thought I had to choose between am I Korean or am I American? Mm. Mm. Um, because I didn't feel like a good version of either of them. Mm. I'm not a good Korean because if I were in Korea, I'm too Americanized and they would not <laughs> be curious about that. Right. And if I, and here I am in America as a little kid and people are bucking their teeth out and, and pulling their fingers to slant their eyes and going, ching chong, wing long. Right. Wing 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 a tang. So and you're I'm the thinking, well, okay, so I don't belong here, but I don't belong in Korea. So where the fuck am I supposed to go? Mm-hmm. You know, where I feel like I'm welcome and I belong and I fit in. Yep. And so. Let gook is, you know, like just allow myself to embrace the fact that I am Asian <laughs> and American and, um, and also to the power of humor. It's just, um, it's always been a part of my life. Uh, only recently did it become something that I was creating as opposed to just enjoying mm. someone else's humor. But, <clears throat> and, you know, your father had a huge impact on me too because, um, I'm a, I'm a lover of the English language and I'm fascinated about how language is something that changes over time and over context and from culture to culture or, you know, neighborhood to neighborhood. And I do believe that we give words power by banning them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I thought, well, what would be the opposite of banning the word gook? <laughs> uh, how about I start, start overusing it? What if I just started using it all the time? Yeah. And, um, you know how if you take any word in the English language like lettuce or something and you just say it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again yes. and you write it over and over, eventually it loses all meaning and it just and it looks, looks like an abstract <laughs> weird yes. thing. Even yes. if you're not high, you're yes. like, whoa, that is bizarre. <laughs> yes. And I wanted to do that with the word gook oh, so that's that great. it could be desensitized for me. It couldn't have any power to hurt me anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I started having my friends, you know, say, Hey, what's up, my gook? And how's my favorite gook? Mm-hmm. And I signed my emails, America's favorite gook or yours gookly or in gooks we trust. <laughs> and now the word truly looks and sounds funny to me. Right, right. And if someone were to come up and say, Hey, you gook, I'd be like, ah, ha, 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 ha. And then they, they wouldn't like that if they were trying to hurt my feelings. <laughs> Because you just could, you yeah. know, it, because there's nothing that's being triggered or re-stimulated inside of me because I've healed that part of myself. Yeah. It would be the same as somebody coming up to me now and saying, you are a tall black man. And I'd be like, what? No, no I'm not. <laughs> yeah, right. Like that's not going to offend me because I don't have any identification with that. Well, and and I think you've also done that with – um at least in my life, the word cancer and having cancer. I mean, when you, when Suzanne <laughs> first told me, I couldn't like call her for like over a week because my mother died of cancer. My oh, grandmother, right. I had all this like, and I'm like always going get my boobs checked every six months and everything. And I was just like, oh, I can't have someone my age close by have it. Like I, I couldn't handle it. Of and course, so I understand. You know, and then it was like, and then I came over to her house. I'm like, <laughs> coming over because God damn it. First of all, A, I got to fucking get over this. And I love Suzanne and I want to hang out with her and so Suzanne and I went through <laughs> she had gone to Agape the lovely people Agape 
were sending her prayers and thoughts and everything. And the little kids, they, they have like a, 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 a you know, the, the, a babysitting service during the, the during the thing. So the kids are in the other room doing art projects and stuff. And they always say, today we're going to put some really nice thoughts on some pieces of paper for some of our people who are, you know, suffering from this or this or that. And and so it's you know, a once a month thing. A once a month and thing. And they give it to one person right. a month. And they gave and it to Suzanne. All the, <laughs> all, the, all the kids have to write something on the little cardboard. A ni- and it's uh, a nice, like little, yeah. like, you know, you know, nice little thoughts for people, you know, sweet little moments or whatever. And so this is huge. She had this huge bottle of this beautiful colored little papered squares. And so she's like, let's just start reading them. <laughs> so we like get like 10, like five or 10 in. And what was the one? What oh was the great God. one? So we pulled, well, first of all, it was a little disconcerting. I mean, some of them were sweet. Some of the kids didn't quite understand. <laughs> they didn't get it. No, they're too young. That they're, it was supposed to be write something nice. We don't know who this is going to. So write right. something nice and lovely and supportive right. from the agape like children. Like feel better. Yes. Or, or whatever right. it is. Or, you I know, love you. Yeah. So whatever. I love you or, you know, have a great day mm-hmm. or everything's going to be okay. Right, right. And some of those, some of them said that. Yes. So one of them said, you know, Aunt Matilda, I'm sorry you died. And I'm like, Aunt Matilda. Right. Oh no, I'm sorry you died. I'm so confused by this. But then we opened one of them and it, I, I opened it up and it said, God loves you. And I thought, oh, that's so nice. So sweet. And for some reason, I don't know what compelled me to, I turned it over and it said, just kidding. <laughs> I'm thinking, what the fuck are they teaching over at Agape? God loves you. Just kidding. Everyone but you. Not you, Suzanne Wong. God does not love you. Ha ha. And, and Kelly and I laughed for like half an hour. It's so beautiful. Because I sort of did feel like, you know, because I'm a minister, I'm a spiritual person. And I, and, you know, five years of having cancer three times, I'm like, fuck you, God. Exactly. Suck yeah, my clearly cock. Clearly just kidding. Suck my cock. Yeah, just kidding indeed. God does not love me. Because apparently, you know, one time of cancer is not enough and neither no. is two, but no. three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Third time's a charm. Exactly. So anyway, <laughs> but you know, I think that, that it's so, um, I think it's so amazing that you would just say that you were having trouble with it and then come anyway. These are two things that most people don't do. They wouldn't even <laughs> say they had trouble with it. They would just vanish from mm, my life mm, right, forever right? because they wouldn't want to own the fact that that's too scary or hard yeah. or, you know, troublesome or triggering or wh- whatever. It's too historical. I can't handle it. Right. right. And then there's the people who would admit that and then want a trophy for just that admission <laughs> and then not actually push through it right and show up yeah yeah you well, know what i mean because because believe me no one was more scared mm. through this whole thing than i was mm. but i had to push through it when people say how can you joke about it i say how can i not yeah i yeah. have to yeah absolutely this is a survival mechanism i think it's one of the reasons why um the the Koreans are the funny people of Asia because <laughs> it has to do – we are the little Asian country that the bigger Asian countries have shit on forever. Yeah, so yeah. we've been oppressed. So we have to use humor to rise above. Like the, the Irish. It's totally like Black the culture, yeah. Jewish culture. The oppression. Yeah, the, the oppression. Oppre- like what yeah. are we going to do about it? Right. Well, we better have a good time yeah. at least. Yeah. Right? <laughs> we better look, fucked. We better look at it in a weird way and laugh about it. Otherwise, forget it. Yeah. Why even go on? Yeah, absolutely. And – um and yeah, I just think it's, um, I think it's, I think it's fascinating that, that even now I hear from my cancer doctors now that they have so many patients in 2012 mm. that are undergoing treatment for cancer who have not told 
their children, their <sighs> spouse, their parents, who they live with wow. oftentimes. And I'm thinking, how do you do that? How do you, how do you do that? And even worse than that, there are people that don't tell anybody and don't undergo any kind of treatment, oh. not Western, not Eastern, mm. not alternative, nothing, mm. because it, it is so debilitating and terrifying. The yeah. news is, is too much for them to handle. Yeah. So they don't, they don't do anything about it. Wow. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do Western, Eastern, alternative. You know, right. for me, it ended up being a combination of a bunch of different things, like a holistic, integrative approach. Yeah. But there have been people who have healed themselves with West, just Western or just Eastern or just alternative. Yep. And, you know, there's been, but to pretend it's not happening and mm. not approach it from any, you know, modality. Yeah. I, I don't think that's going to work. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah. An, oh, your heart just breaks for that because it just, it's such a, it's such a, a level of denial to self and to others. Yes. And to, oh my, and God, maybe they think they're being punished or God knows what. I or mean. they assume that it's a death sentence. Yeah. I, I believe right. that it should be illegal for a doctor to say to any patient, you have two weeks to live. Yeah. I know this to be true. I'm thinking, how could you possibly know that to be true? It depends on the person's yeah. mind, body, well, and I, I spirit. Mean, that's why You've Lance, be Lance Armstrong was so incredible. I mean, he had a, a 9% chance of living and he just didn't do that. <laughs> he just did everything he could. Well, right. You because know? there are people, but here's the danger is that if you think your doctor is God, which a lot of patients do, mm-hmm. then guess what happens in exactly two weeks? You drop dead. Right. Because You've bought it, into it, it, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy and that's what happens because your doctor is right. Yeah. And that, that's really scary to me. And then luckily there are people like me who roll up my sleeves and go, Oh no, I'll be dancing on your grave, motherfucker. Yeah, you know absolutely. what I mean? Like that's not what's going to happen here. Yeah. I don't think so. So I, I don't, I don't accept that. I mean, and you want to talk about statistics. I should be dead by right about now mm-hmm. because stage four yep. metastatic, it's spread. Oh, it's really bad. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I absolutely know that I'm going to die one day, but not from this. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just, that's just not what's happening. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it is still funny because, um, now that I'm, I'm recovered from the surgeries and the, got through the radiation and got through the chemo and I'm doing all these, you know, different things. I have my energy back and I can walk again without, you know, looking mm-hmm. like that woman who <laughs> is praying for something even worse to happen to her. Um, and yet people say to me, Oh my God, you look so beautiful. <laughs> It's like, thanks, it's the cancer. It's my beauty secret. You should get some. It's the radiation. I'm still glowing. Well, I have to tell you, Sin, you, you are, it's been an incredible inspiration to be around you and to watch you and, and to, 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 I mean, you know, go, you, you, she had this big benefit a couple of months ago and watching people get up there and then watching you get up there and your story and the pictures and everything. And it's just, um, you, you know, I really do believe that storytelling, telling our life story is so essential because so many people do walk around feeling so alone. They do. And they don't understand that we're all humans. We're all suffering. We're all crazy. <laughs> we're all dysfunctional and we're all dealing with something, something, you know, and, uh, so I, it, I think it's just essential for the collective psyche. 
absolutely for us to come forward and tell our stories. And, and some people with cancer think that they're just going to be dead, and they yeah. need to hear stories that people say, who say who are saying, "No, twenty years later, yep. I'm fine." Absolutely, absolutely, it's so true. So, when are you are you workshopping your show? I'm workshopping February? it. Yes, uh, it's a work in progress, but it's February fifth. 12th, 19th, and then we're skipping Oscar Sunday, yeah, which smart. is smart. Yeah. And then we're going to March 4th. So it's uh, three Sundays and then skipping Oscar night and then another Sunday. And it's at Beyond Baroque in Venice, California. Oh, and that's what I was trying to tell you. So I did this at Taboo Tales and then mm. I did it at Sit and Spin, which is another spoken right. word thing, you know, with right. the, the Jim Bowley and, and Maggie, Maggie Rowe. Rowe and Anderson. What's his last name? Oh, I was going to say Cooper, but that's not right. No. <laughs> Anderson Gobrick, Gabrick. Yes. Anyway, uh, I did it there, and um, and then I I think I did it at Beyond Baroque. And Eve Branstein, who was the casting director for Spinal Tap and one of the producers of ER, yeah. and you know, she's, she's been in business forever. She's bitching. She saw me do this ten minute piece and said, "Please tell me you're developing this into a solo show, and mm. if you are not, you must." And I want to direct it and produce oh. it. So this is what's happening. Yay. And just like with your show, I am fully confident that we're going to see each other on Broadway. Yep. Why not? Yep. Absolutely. Right? We're coming. Truly. Why not? We're coming. Absolutely. We got shit to say, people. And if people want to get details or tickets, they can go to www.suzannehuang, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-W-H-A-N-G, crackedopen.com. Thank you for coming by, Suzanne. Okay, I got to figure out what song I want to play here. And then uh, my other guest is coming up here. So I think I'm going to play a song um, that is uh, by uh, Eric Schwartz. That is Suzanne's main squeeze. Uh, this is such a great song. Where is it? It's called Better Man. Enjoy this. One, two, three. There is one whom I have wronged And he looks at me Angrily This bothers me No matter what I do I offer my apologies Always he ignores my pleas But I ask myself What the better man would do would forgive me so I'll forgive me too there have been so many times that I have felt so low I would rather die than look at me from someone else's view and always there were those who would gladly tell me I'm no good, but I ask myself what the better man would do. He would love me, so I will love me too. I've been ashamed of the life that I've been living. Take my hand, tell me I'm forgiven.
I've been ashamed The life that I've been living So take my hand And tell me I'm forgiven So if you're walking down the street And you see a soul who's in defeat Don't you pass him by No matter what you do Brother, don't you understand That when you land a helping hand The person that you really help is you, yeah Love your neighbor, yeah He will love you too If you do the things If you do the things you do things the better may will do That was Eric Schwartz, who uh, is Suzanne Wong's main squeeze, uh, a great friend and such a talent, uh, really. We have these parties here at my house, and he comes with his keyboard, and uh, all of our musician friends come with their guitars and beatboxes and tambourines, and he is the musical director. He can do any song, any genre uh, and just sing his heart out. So uh, look for Eric Schwartz. I think you can find him on YouTube. Don't know if he has a website, but check him out. Love his stuff. Uh, so my next guest is uh, uh, similar in some ways to me. She's uh, the daughter of a man who uh, changed the culture of America just slightly, <laughs> became an icon. Uh, Erica Heller, she's a former advertising copywriter. She's a published novelist, memoirist, which we'll be talking about. Her father was author Joseph Heller. Yes, catch 22, that Joseph Heller. And, uh, she, her, her book is Yosarian Slept Here When Joseph Heller Was Dad, The Apthorpe Was Home, and Life Was a Catch 22. And, uh, it's a great book. She's a great writer. She's got a really nice, sick, black sense of humor. <laughs> Erica, are you there? Can you hear me? Oh, there you are. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Did uh, you say sick or sick? I said sick. You know, like a good, oh, good you know, okay. a good, That's yeah. Bad. No, the good, the good kind of, you know, dark humor. <laughs> so, Erica, I was, first of all, I mean, your book is all about growing up with your dad and, um, what I love about your book is you create, I mean, you create such a world. You really just help, you know, in, you know, suck us into this. First of all, you're, you're, you're interesting, unique and amazing family, but also this very, just this iconic place you lived, uh, in, in Manhattan. And I have to tell you, I didn't, I didn't get to, my dad grew up on the Upper West Side up near Columbia, up near Columbia, 121st between Broadway and Amsterdam. And, um, and so I've never gotten to really live as an adult in New York. So I'm just, I'm a little jealous that you've got to live in this great building and these, for, for your entire life and your, I'm damn you. Entire <laughs> life. <laughs> so don't, don't be that jealous. I was stuck on the east side for about 18 years. 
um, which was pretty boring. So don't be too jealous. <laughs> and I lived in Holland for a little bit. That was interesting. Nice. But ended up back in this uh, very, very interesting building with uh, histor- uh, historical craziness to it. And now it's sort of like a, a huge construction site. Uh, day and night, so it's, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't be jealous right now. <laughs> and, and so, and so, a little bit of history about the building. It's got a great history. When when was it built? It was it built at the turn of the century. Yes, it was. It was uh, by William Waldorf Astor, uh, who who uh, had owned the farmland for quite a while and decided to build a very tall building. There was nothing like that around here then, really. And then he went to England and moved there and never saw it uh, finished uh, and was burnt in effigy in Times Square. Wow. Because he became an English citizen. How's that for condemnation? (laughs) And uh, it takes up a whole city block. It's, you know, big apartments, tall ceilings, lots of detail and... It's kind of being ruined right now um, with renovations. Are, so. are people gentrifying it? I hope not. Yeah. I mean, Louis C.K. lives here. Uh, he just moved here. So I hope not. I don't think we have to worry about that with him. No, I think I think he'll be respectful of the history. He's, uh, he's a pretty good guy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what, what motivated you to write this book at this point in your life? Um, well, I had been in advertising for a long time. I was a writer. Um, and my mother was, my parents were divorced, and my mother was still living here at the App Store and got uh, diagnosed with lung cancer. Mm. And I quit my job and came to live with her and take care of her for about a year and a half until she died. And lo and behold, when I looked around, uh, there was no advertising business anymore, <laughs> yeah. at least for me. Yeah. There was no work. Um, so I thought I might have to do real writing. And, <laughs> uh, because I'm sorry, selling toilet paper and things like that, you know, cars, it's um, toy writing, sort of. Um, so I was thinking my parents had a very long marriage. Um, was very complicated and did not end well. Uh, but I think my father, my father died a couple of years after my mother did. And I think he always regretted what had happened. And it was sort of a, a story that I kept going over in my head a little bit about them. Um, and, and so originally I was going to write a short story and it just kind of kept getting longer and longer and mm. back and forth. And uh, then I uh, was reminded that the 50th anniversary of Catch-22 was coming up mm. this year. Um, so I thought at least, you know, I'll have a deadline and it can all sort of be time to coincide. Um, so that, that was the timing, too. I figured... Somebody's going to do it. Right. Um, <laughs> Might as well be me. <laughs> now, did, did you somebody ha- else 
word. Uh, but that's another story. Did did you? There ha- was a biography that came out. Uh, and and did you have any um, trepidation? Uh, you know, your father is held up as this icon of the great, you know, written one of the great American novels. And uh, did did you have to deal with, like, you know, the shadow thing of, you know, people were going to compare you or is your writing going to be good enough? Or did you go through any I of that? Of always, I always assumed it never would be. Hmm. So I never really... <laughs> it was kind of more than a shadow. Um, and I just figured I would do the best I could. Hmm. And I never really... I mean, really... If you got up every day and thought like that, you really could never write a word. Uh, so I really, you know, and also I have not read Catch 22, which probably let <laughs> um, me go my merry way with this book, um, in a sense, because I was not always thinking about mm. uh, his talent. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's that's quite an amazing fact about your life story that you have not read Catch Twenty Two. Can't do it. I can't do it. I mean, I'm very honest about it. I try. Now, uh, is it is it is it because it's your dad, or because of the subject matter, or I mean, what's what is the probably so many things. Uh, I don't want to finish it because then it's finished. Hmm. And really sort of the last thing left, it's kind of like a, a a treasure that's left over. And, I mean, I'll be 198 years old and waiting <laughs> to read it about treasure, but I don't know, I just, I just keep postponing it. And I get a little further every time, uh, and it's not bad. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it has its moments, um, <laughs> so I can understand why it's still around. Mm-hmm. I just personally, uh, I, I can't seem to do it. Hmm. Did you read it? You, you, you know what? I I never read it. I read other books, you know, certainly like it, other kind of books that same sort of social commentary about bureaucracy and things like that. I mean, like Orwell and stuff. But but I can relate about the not reading it. I mean, my dad had three books out, all did very, very well, very funny books. And I have never sat down and read them cover to cover. I've opened them up a little bit here and there. But I really, I, you know, I, it's like, I'm sorry, I, I ha- kind of had better things to do with my life than sit around reading my dad's books. <laughs> That's a really good answer. I never thought of that. <laughs> I had my own shit to slog through, God damn it! But... I'm going to borrow that one a lot. <laughs> excellent, excellent, excellent. I have better things to do. <laughs> I mean, I love my dad and he's brilliant and all of that, but, you know, and, and it's, but I, I think it's so interesting about you, you know, kind of, I get that like it's this treasure thing and if you do read it then it becomes the known thing whereas right now it's an idea of something it's you know it's yeah and, and i saw the movie <laughs> well see there you go that that's that happens and... <laughs> now I don't know, it's, you know i didn't really uh, i had to think about this a lot obviously in writing this and i realized i didn't really 
I don't know about you. I'm about uh, 98 years older than you are, but um, I didn't really read World War II books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Not like I read Norman Mailer and I read James Jones and I didn't read Dad. Mm-hmm. I just really, you know, for whatever reason, that was part of it too. Um, a, a, gener- it a generational thing too, yeah. Maybe. I mean, it's just, I didn't want to read about war like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Makes sense. Now, but I'm, I'm curious about you not reading. <laughs> Your father's book. Yeah. Well, I certainly read them. <laughs> well, you know what? It's funny because, I mean, I'm a fan of my father, but I'm not I'm not someone who seeks out comedy books or comedy shows or comedy concerts. I mean, I, I have a lot more contact nowadays with the comedy world since my father died just because I a lot of these crazy comedians have come into my life and I've been educated more about it. But even today, I don't. I really don't seek out that kind of stuff. I'm I'm kind of more of a introspective person. I like philosophy and and right. you know books about the mind and psychology and depth psychology, Jungian stuff. But well, and maybe I, it's that right, you know too much. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I and I think part of it too is that um, you know for many years I I, I myself was um, not pursuing my own art. I was keeping myself in the shadow. And yeah. so I think some part of me was like when, you know, when you read those books, you're like, gee, I, you know, I wish I was doing this a little bit. So there's, you know, there's a part of you that's kind of living this unlived life and, uh, and yeah. so, there's something about that. But, um, I'm curious about your process in, uh, in working with your life and memories and memoir. Uh, oh. how, yeah. How did you go about reconstructing sure moments? Yeah, I, um, I think people are interested about the process of, of writing one's one's about one's life. Well, what happened, um, it was, we as a family in different configurations have had four different apartments in this, in this building over the years since 1952. Mm. So the first thing was I broke it up into four sections with each apartment and with each block of time. So that sort of was a good construction to work with. Um, and then the amazing thing to me is I sat down and I thought, I don't remember anything. Hmm. You know, where do I start? Then you remember one little thing, then another thing, and soon it's really, you're so flooded with so much stuff. Um and details come back, and, you know, fragments of conversation comes back, and you realize it's all in there. It's all, it's there, mm. and it's been there a long time. And so I had all these bulletin boards with index cards, and I would get up in the middle of the night and move the cards around, you know, because this happened before that, and that happened after this, and and you kind of go into this world because um, you really do have to relive things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to write at all authentically and in a detailed way that I at least like to read. Um, you really have to go through the whole thing, everything again. Yeah. And I had to really 
isolate myself in order to do that. I didn't see my friends for a long time. I was very, very isolated. Um, and it was, it was a difficult process. I mean, it wasn't, uh, I was very committed to it. And just, I was just sort of amazed at how much was there. Uh, you know, I thought, how am I going to fill this book? You know, it has, how many photographs can I have? <laughs> you know, 98 pages of photographs and two pages of text. And then I, I wrote like 400 extra pages or something. Wow. And it was a huge, huge thing that had to be cut down, but it comes back. Yeah. I mean, I think you'll see that. It's really sort of astonishing. Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm doing a one-woman show right now. It's an hour-and-a-half show, um, and it's about um, 12 font, sing, you know, double-spaced. Uh, it's about 30, <laughs> 35, 40 pages, you know, but it's, and you know, I've memorized it and everything. But even that, I mean, I've been working for 10 years on stories, and I have about 50, 60 pages of a memoir written, and... Um, yeah, I mean, I find you have so much material. Now, when you, so you originally had these, you know, this huge amount of pages. And, right. and did you, did you know, I mean, you had these four sections, but did you and, and an editor work with deciding, like, what is, what is this story about? You know, like, what is this, what is this family about? Are there certain themes that you ended up seeing and, and highlighting? Or how, how did like the next, culling process begin for you? The next culling was sort of to um, maintain what I learned was called the narrative arc, mm-hmm. which I had no idea. I saw it like two animals get in it and when it rains. <laughs> I didn't know what a narrative arc was. I learned. Um, and the main thing, you just kind of have to have one idea in your head um, and be on one one track at a time, and it was in this case, it was about you know a family, people growing up and changing, and going through the transformations that I mean I guess I could call it fame and success. Sure. Um, how it changed my family, and. Uh, and, and the relationships within it. And so everything that sort of, um, went off too much on tangents and examples of things or, or things I wanted in there that weren't really pertinent, but mm-hmm. I liked writing about them all had to be, you know, butchered basically. Um, cause you have to really stay on 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 what's going on and it can only it really has to have some movement and flow and and start somewhere and end somewhere yes so um and and mine ends with my grandmother's pot roast recipe (laughs) which i felt you know at least that would be worth the price of a book well according to your father it was worth a lot yeah, he he yeah, he really loved that. Mm. Ten thousand big ones. <laughs> I don't know. How, I don't know how you resisted from telling him. It's a dope. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because when I was 
loyalty to my mother. Uh, I, I was reading it, and um, you know, I'm a nice Irish girl, and uh, have never made a good brisket. I used to be married to a to a, a Jewish man, and uh, his his mom made a great uh, brisket. And so I was reading your book, and I was like, you know what? I've never made a brisket before. And so a couple of weekends ago, I made a brisket and I was thinking of you while I was making it. I was like, I know this isn't as, as good as Erica's mom's pot roast, but. <laughs> you didn't have to pay $10,000. And I didn't. No, no, I didn't. Absolutely. <laughs> so when you were done writing this, um, what, you know, like, here you've put all of this out, and you've how how many years did it take you to write it? It took me about a year and a half. Wow, two years. Mm, yeah, and um, and so when you're done with something like this, where you've been isolated and you've been pouring over it, and it's become your whole kind of psyche and lives in you, and uh, and now you're in like the the post part of it where it's out and you're no longer having to live with it every day. What what was that transition like for you? Oh, it's awful. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm like someone, you know, who was in the army and every minute it was accounted for. I knew where I was going and what I was doing. Ah. And it's sort of uh Something that, you know, you feel sort of like a postpartum mm. weirdness. Mm. Um, it's not there anymore. It's finished. Mm. And I was just used to thinking about these things and, and it's done. Mm. Um, and I thought, well, I guess I should do another one. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll write another book. So I started thinking about what to do next, but. It was a very strange, you know, in my case, I I don't know how people have um, friendships and relationships and write and and have a life. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't know how to figure that out. I had to kind of step out of everything. So compartmental, then, compartmentalizing it was hard for you, which... Uh, because I, I also have not the greatest concentration and focus on work. Mm. Um, so I had a really, you know, and there was a deadline yep. and an anniversary, so it had to be done. But it was a, it's a, it was a strange thing to finish. It's, it's really like saying goodbye to everybody again, mm. um, which is very hard. Yeah, wow. I get that. I really, I, I, I can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. Did did you what did you learn about your family by doing this process that um like what did your mind get changed about them or the most important thing, I mean the easiest thing to explain is what I had a feeling about before but after writing it I was convinced which is that basically we're all nuts and we do the best we can. Mm. And, uh, you know, you go through a lot of, of reliving people's mistakes that they made, um, as people do with their children and their grandchildren and things that we look at now as mistakes. But I really sort of uh, came to understand that even crazy people do the best they can. Yeah. Um you know, nobody 
that's out to hurt to hurt somebody or disappoint somebody. Um, everyone pretty much makes it up as they go along, <laughs> and so that it, that gave me sort of a a wider view of that. And I'm guessing um, even the ability to have more compassion for yourself and your own human uh, foibles. I uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to have to work on that, Erica. Then that's our next step. <laughs> really be healthy and, and uh, everybody but me, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, you've got that syndrome. I see. Everyone else gets to be forgiven but you, huh? No, I had, I had really uh, much more compassion for people than I had thought I was. Hmm. And I was very circumspect about, uh, you know, you have to be careful, as you know, when you put something in print and it's out there. Yeah. You don't always get to explain, well, I meant this and I didn't mean that. And, yeah. Uh, so I was very, very careful and I really did not want to, um, condemn anybody or, you know, because they did the best they could. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I find really refreshing, and I I was thinking about my own process with this, is, um, you know, you're a real straight shooter when it comes to your father. Your your father had a, you know, kind of a rough personality and, you know, a difficult demeanor at times and uh, was not the perfect doting daddy. And, uh, you know, I've, no. I've had to, you know, I've been wrestling with that with my, with my own father who was very loving with me and I had a great relationship with, but we, you know, we had our own, you know, issues and friction and, um, and it's, you know, you're, you're kind of walking that line between dutiful daughter and, um, you know, honest woman who, who, who needs to tell her story. And, you know, I think every, this is what every storyteller who does memoir does. And, um, so I was really inspired by that, your ability to hold him in this loving way and yet be really straight with the reader about it. You know, like this was who he was and this, he, you know, he, he, you know, he wasn't, uh, the, the perfect charming daddy all the time. He, uh, had some real rough edges. Well, I think that was that was one of the things that was very difficult and probably is with anybody writing about the family because you really it's not about your opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to just kind of put everything down and and the person reading it puts it together yeah. in their head and, and comes out somewhere with it. You can't just say, you know, she was a bitch and this one was you know this one was nasty and that one was was stupid and you have to kind of give the material instead and step aside mm. and um my father was you know he was as you can imagine very complicated he was also very funny <laughs> um very idiosyncratic and uh a lot of it was was pretty hilarious and the rest of it I uh, I talked to somebody when I got started who um, Chris Buckley mm-hmm. who had written I think a pretty amazing memoir about his parents yes. losing mom and pop. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you read that. I I, and, I know of it. Yes, and it was just gorgeous. It was elegant and really carefully uh, 
just beautifully, beautifully done. And he said the best advice he could give was just write everything, write absolutely everything, and then throw like 80% of it away. <laughs> because, um, but, but, to, but to start out, just write everything. And you really have to. Mm. And then you get to see what shape you want to make it and, and how you want people to be presented and, and, and what you want them left with about people. But a lot of it, a lot of it you just, is, is too personal mm-hmm. and, or does seem too opinionated. And so I tried to, to take a lot of that out. Mm. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I know we, there's always some favorite things or a moment or whatever. And it just, you know, yeah, and it may not mean anything to anybody else. <laughs> exactly, and yet it's this precious thing, and you know. But the good, right. the good news is, I mean, I know, like for me, one of the things I like to do is I write these shorter essays where I do like these ten-minute spoken word pieces, and so some of those kind of gems get to have a different life and maybe get to be put in a different place, and uh, you know, who knows where they can where they can go. Um, yeah, yeah. That's wrote mine in very tiny little pieces. I mean, it was the. I think I had to trick myself into doing a whole book. It was just <laughs> 150 pages. It was mm, mm. little pieces. Yeah, that went together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and so this is like the corniest, horrible, most horrible question ever. But um, uh, in is there some way in which your life was like a catch twenty two? It's not corny at all, and I put it in the title, so it's not your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Corny, it's my fault. Um, I I would say yes because of the good things that it brought and uh, the things that came with that that sort of did make it worth it and didn't make it worth it and, and were paradoxical because everything sort of had a, a flip side that nothing, nothing, I think I said in it that nothing made sense but everything added up mm. all the time. And, um, so to me, you know, a lot of things got better as my father got more successful and, and certain things didn't, and there was a price. Mm. Um, but to, to me, it was just all very paradoxical, so that's why I really said that mm-hmm. and called it that. Yeah, yeah. I think um, uh, uh, one of the, my favorite moments in the book is when... <laughs> Your parents are sitting at the dinner table trying to come up with a title for the book, and they they right. were they were originally going to call it Catch Eighteen, and they couldn't uh, right. because of uh, a Eurus book. And uh, and I just love that, like Catch, um, I don't know, twenty uh, six? No, not twenty six. That doesn't work. Twenty <laughs> six isn't funny. It's not funny. No, <laughs> it's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> funny how is the number funny <laughs> well you know this is this is the mystery of comedy but uh you know some 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 are and some aren't but uh 
But yeah, I just love that because, you know, everyone thinks that uh, these iconic kind of titles or things like that, you know, they think they, they come from some angel up above who comes and walks into the room and says, here, here is your divine inspiration. And no, no, this is people shooting the shit around a, a dining room table at dinner. <laughs> oh, hurry up. We only have till tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, quick. Come up with it. <laughs> But it's pretty funny because a couple of times people have asked me, um, you know, are there any other catches other than the 22? (laughs) (laughs) Other than that one, does the Army have (laughs) bikes? And I... Like, there was nothing like that. Oh, that's you know, so... He made it up. Oh. Oh, oh. oh he made it up. <laughs> and they also use it as long as a, as a, a noun or I guess whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And they say, like, you know, I I ordered a chicken salad sandwich and they brought me a tuna fish sandwich. It was such a catch-22. <laughs> <laughs> wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... In the language, but yeah. not always completely. But but in the end, we didn't come up with the, the number. His editor did. Smarty, so smarty pants. That worked out. <laughs> so what are you working on now? I'm working on... Um, what a question. Ooh. <laughs> I'm kind of... I'm, kind of superstitious about talking about anything okay. well, that you, I'm you, thinking about doing. You don't have to. Are, I assume that a huge meteor will come. <laughs> I get all organized and start. <laughs> and just hit your apartment. <laughs> right. It's right, it, right aimed at me. Exactly. At my desk. Right, exactly. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of doing research for something um, that it, it's, I hope, funny and about medicine huh. and um, illness, which sounds... Also paradoxical, but I hope it'll be funny. Well, it it fits right in with my previous guest, who's one of my good friends, who's a comedian and and has been making cancer her bitch, as she said for the last year. She's got stage four cancer, and uh, she's there's no paradox when it comes to uh, making uh, making the process of medicine or healing uh, funny. Humor humor is essential in that process, and and I think essential uh, in any big subject. Uh, you know, but some I think we we are alive in spite of our doctors. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is very true. Absolutely. <laughs> Amen but to that. But I'm concentrating on. I think. Well, wonderful. Well, good. I look. I, I look forward to your next work, and I look forward to when I'm in New York. I don't know when that'll be, but hopefully soon. I'd love to sit down and. Uh, have, Are you going to bring your show here? I I'm I'm hoping to. Yes, that is my big plan is to do a run in New York. So you know, oh, fingers and toes crossed, and that'll be, you know, something we'll be we'll be working up towards this year. But uh, we're just start starting the tour now, starting to get things organized. So, but yes, New York is absolutely on my list of places to be. So, uh, but I'll be there before Remember before me. that. I will, and I want to come meet you and have a nice pastrami sandwich at a nice delicatessen somewhere with you. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. I'm ready. Excellent. Well, oh, Erica, don't forget the oh. 
<laughs> well, Erica, thank you so much for taking time. And I thoroughly enjoy your writing and your sense of humor and your beautiful, beautiful wordsmithing and your honesty about your family. And, uh, and, uh, take care and, uh, get and back. Look and look, and look out for meteors. <laughs> <laughs> you have a beautiful night. Thank you. You're very bye bye. So that was Erica Heller. Uh, her book is called Yosarian Slept Here. When Joseph Heller was dad, the Apthorpe was home, and life was a catch twenty two. And it's great. There's like little chapters, but it's her whole life with her dad and uh, her mom, and fascinating, complicated family. Like she said, um, well, well written, funny, smart. Um, and if you're a Joseph Heller fan, a, a must read and, uh, you need to become an Erica Heller fan now. So that's my show right now. Let's see. We're going to wrap things up here. Um, next week, like I said, I'll be up in San Francisco. Please come by the Eureka theater on Friday night. Come see me or come stand outside and see me afterwards and say, hi, I would love to meet you. Uh, what else is going on? Oh, I just found out I'm going to be at South by Southwest. Very excited. I've always wanted to go. And uh, so I'm going to bring my show down there to Austin. Don't know which week. Uh, I just got an email today. I don't know what the date is exactly, but I think it's during the film interactive thing or whatever. Um, during whatever the comedy, there's like four days of comedy, um, which is so strange because my show really isn't a comedy. It just happens to have a comedian in it. Uh, but I'm going to be there. And uh, yeah, some other things are brewing. So I'm excited about that. And uh, what else? Well, of course, you can find me on Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin. And Waking from the American Dream is Waking Ammer Dream. You can find me on Facebook, of course, um, although I'm not there much anymore. But, you know, I like the Twitter a lot. And if you have any uh, royalty-free music, not that I'm researching any of these. i got to just get my shit together. But i got a pile of stuff in my room to listen to. But if you have any comments or questions or some royalty-free music, send me an MP3 to wfadradio at gmail.com. Uh, I want to thank Mr. Logan Heftel here for hanging out and uh, – being my fabulous producer engineer, uh, I'm not allowed to talk about exactly what Logan and I did on Monday, but let's just say we sat down with Lewis Black for about an hour and talked to him. Uh, it will not be for this show, I hate to say. It'll be for something new that's brewing in my life that I can't exactly talk about, but it has to do with a very large satellite radio company. That's all I have to say. Hopefully I can talk about it soon. Next week when I'm in in San Francisco for Sketchfest, I'll be sitting down with some other large, big-named comedian human beings and having discussions with them too for this new show. So you will get me in two different directions on the internet both ways uh, because the other uh, large satellite company also has online access. Um, so that's exciting and happening. And uh, I want to thank you all for being here and listening to me and, and hanging out with me and following me and, I don't know, just participating in this crazy thing that I call life these days and I don't understand it. I don't – I have no idea how I almost have 10,000 fucking followers on Twitter. It's insane, but I love you all. Thank you for following me, even if 6,500 of you are fucking bots. <laughs> um, everyone's, uh, let's see what else is going on. That's it, I think. Um, thank you to, uh, Smodcast and company 
for all of that they do. They're a fantastic group of people. They're crazy. They're nutty. They're lovely. They're smart. They all got it going on. So thank you guys for hosting my podcast. And um, I think that's it. And I think I'm going to end tonight with a song um, from my friend Tracy Newman. Uh, this is called Waffle Boy. There's a new guy making waffles today at the Waffle House. It's Sunday morning and busy as it can be. I take a last available seat at the counter. Where the new guy stationed right in front of me. All four of his machines are overflowing with batter. It's oozing down the cabinet to the floor. It's two inches deep, he can hardly keep his footing. Three waitresses are waiting for. Waffles. If he can't make them, they can't serve them. Shouldn't us diners take a closer look at him? Five foot five, barely seventeen. Legs tangled up in dirty apron strings. Really bad skin, two broken teeth. Arms like sticks poking out of his sleeves. A chef's hat teetering on his big ears. He's sweating like a pig. He's fighting back with tears and his try. Fire. The boy who mends the waffle iron. Well, a buzzer sounds, a waffle's ready, so he lifts the lid. He can't ease the waffle out, so he grabs a fork. Stabs at the waffle, it breaks into little pieces. He digs them out and flicks them on the floor. A young waitress can't resist, she tries to help him. But the man in charge of eggs throws her a look. She backs away, I guess the egg man is the owner. Father of this awkward would be cook of waffles. If he can't make them, they can't serve them. We're all thinking that this job's too much for him. Five foot five, barely seventeen. Legs tangled up in dirty apron strings. Really bad skin, two broken teeth. Arms like sticks poking out of his sleeves. The chef's hat teetering on his big ears. He's sweating like a pig, he's fighting back with tears. Ain't it time to fire? The boy who mends the waffle
Everyone is hungry. Little children are crying. So who cares how a teenager is feeling? Then suddenly he puts a waffle on an egg-filled plate. His ragged smile would take your breath away. Spins around to show the waffle to that waitress, but like a frisbee, it sails right off the plate and flies into the face of the Eggman.